into my soul adore you. We give you everything because we owe you everything. Thank you so much, Lord, for how good you have been to us. My humble prayer now, Lord God, as always, is that it would be all of you and none of you. That you would increase as I decrease. The words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you again, worship team. I need to make a brief announcement. Next Sunday, we're going to be in for a special treat as we'll have a guest joining our worship team for at least one song as we will hear from Nathan Hill, who will bless us with a song that he wrote himself. Uh, he, so don't, you don't want to miss it. Uh, so be here to hear from Nathan on next Sunday. We look forward to that. Thank you, worship team. Would you stand with me and turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 19? Joshua, chapter 19, verses 49 through 51. We will read verse, uh, Joshua 19, 49 through 51. Here is what you'll find when you get there. When they, had, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath-Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritances that Eleazar the prince and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. Amen. I'd like to talk today from this thought, the conclusion of the allotments. You may be seated, the conclusion of the allotments. Our passage today actually includes four chapters, four chapters, chapters 16 through 19. As we wrap up the tribal allotments section of the book of Joshua. But rather than reading all four chapters, somebody say amen. amen. I thought we would, <laughs> I thought we would take the final three verses of chapter 19 and use them to frame our discussion today. And I thought that you would likely appreciate that. So that's what we are doing. We're taking those last three verses of chapter 19. Last week, as you'll recall, from chapter 14, we looked at some admirable qualities in Caleb. You remember Caleb, Joshua's fellow uh, faithful spy from 45 years prior? Uh, we looked at those faithful, admirable qualities in him as he represented the tribe of Judah and received the prized land of Hebron as his allotment. Now, then, as we arrive at the end of chapter 19 and the conclusion of the tribal allotments, we'll do the same for Joshua throughout the book of Joshua and the record of Joshua's entire life. We've read where time and time again, he demonstrated many admirable 
Christ-like qualities as a military general and as a spiritual leader, such as obedience, uh, faithfulness, uh, courage, wisdom. We've seen these throughout in Joshua. Today, in the portion of the passage that we just read, I see at least three more of these commendable and exemplary characteristics that I'd like to take a closer look at from the passage that we read earlier. Here they are, uh, nobility, humility, and industriousness. They're in the passage, and we'll talk about them. First, let's, let's take a stab at nobility. Nobility, we see it in the first part of the passage in verse 49, the first part of verse 50, it says this again, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked. Let's stop there. We see, or I do, and hopefully you will in a minute before we finish, I see nobility in this. Nobility is defined as having or showing fine personal qualities or high moral principles and ideals. Uh, These principles and ideals are are principles and ideals like modesty, uh, moderation, selflessness. And we see it in this part of this passage, how noble it was on Joshua's part to wait until all the tribes had received their inheritances before he came forward to ask for his own. He didn't ask to go first. He didn't even go get on the bandwagon when Caleb asked for his special portion back in chapter 14. When we get to chapter 16, just to review, when we get to chapter 16, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, east of the Jordan, and Judah, west of the Jordan, have been allotted already. And there then as we arrive at 16, remains eight and a half tribes to be allotted. Chapter 16 and 17 cover the allotments for, for the Joshua tribes. Ephraim and the other half tribe of Manasseh. Chapter 16 deals mostly with the area allotted to Ephraim. Chapter 16, verse 4 says this, the people of Judah, people of Joseph, rather, Manasseh and Ephraim received their inheritance. Then chapter 17 gives the boundaries of Manasseh beyond the Jordan and north of Ephraim. So then when we get to chapter 17, chapter 17, verse 1 says this, then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph to make her the firstborn of Manasseh, the father of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan, because he was a man of war. These, this was already allotted to Maker, the half-tribe of Manasseh, already allotted east of the Jordan. 17.2 deals with the remaining part of the half-tribe of Manasseh that'll be allotted west of the Jordan in Canaan proper. 17.2, which will not be on your screen, says this, and allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans. Ebiezer, Helic, Ezreal, Shechem, Hepher, and Shemida. They These were the male descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, by their clans. 
These were the remaining tribe, remainder of the half-tribe of Manasseh that was to be allotted west of the Jordan. Then, in chapter 17, we get to this interesting account uh, of the great-great-grandson of Manasseh. His name is Zelophehad. He has no sons, only five daughters who go to Eleazar, Joshua, and the tribal leaders and claim and receive their portion of the territory, of their territory of Manasseh. It's, rec it's recorded in 17, 3, and 4, and it's interesting. I'll tell you why in a minute. It says this in 3 and 4. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, son of Ge Gilead, son of Maker, son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Malah, Noah, Haglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar, the priest, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and the leaders, and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. The record of this, by the way, is in Numbers chapter 27, when the Lord gives instruction to Moses to do this, because they come then and say, uh, uh, we, we, we're women, and we don't have any brothers, and there's no sons, and what are we going to do? And the Lord instructs then that they would be given. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. This situation, noted in the text, it's noted because it was unusual for women to receive an inheritance. That God had already instructed Moses to give the five daughters of the land shows at least a couple of things. Number one, that it was more important that the land remain in the ancestral families than it was to follow the custom that only sons should inherit the land. But number two, it was important because of this. It shows a concern for the rights of women at a time when most societies regarded them as nothing more than shadow. God is no respecter of persons, and so God took care of them. Still taking care of all of us even today. By the way, we got a lot of this to go through and we're going somewhere with it. I want to uh, circle back around to show you the point that we talked about when we started this. I'll get there in a minute, but we got to do these allotments first. So in 16 and 17, we find out that the territories of Ephraim and Manasseh in Canaan consisted of the rich areas of central Canaan, which were in many respects the most beautiful and fertile of all of the land goes to Ephraim and Manasseh. So as we arrive at chapter 18, allotments were now finished for two, two and a half tribes uh, on the east of the Jordan, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, and two and a half tribes west of the Jordan, Judah, Ephraim, and the other half tribe of Manasseh. The next task was to settle the seven smaller tribes that remained. For this purpose, the camp including the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, was shifted from Gilgal to a more central location at Shiloh. Many of the people had by now, uh, if you go back and read it, you'll find out they didn't have the qualities Joshua had because by now they had become lazy and were not willing to fight or even to work. They had motivational issues. And Joshua stirred them up to finish the job that God 
had promised them that they were to finish and had sent them to finish. So in Joshua 18, 3, here's what, it, here's what happens. Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the Lord, the God of your fathers has given you? You've been waiting around too long. How long are you going to wait? He then sets a plan in motion. He sent off men to survey the remainder of the land and divide it into seven portions. He then drew lots to decide which area each tribe would receive. Beginning with the tribe of Benjamin, it's, re it's recording the rem remainder of chapter 18. Uh, the tribe of Benjamin, chapter 18, verse 11 says this, the lot of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans, came up. In the territory allotted to it fell between people of Judah and the people of Joseph. Benjamin then received a small area between the powerful tribes of Judah and Ephraim. A number of important towns of, central, of the central highlands were located in Benjamin. Among them, Jerusalem, which was just inside Benjamin's southern border. Chapter 19, which is... One of the longest chapters in Joshua gives us the allotments for the remaining six tribes, starting with this one that has an interesting name that is near and dear to me, the tribe of Simeon. Simeon is covered in the first part of chapter 19. 19.1 says this, the second lot came out for Simeon. For the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans, and their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. Simeon was settled in part of the tribal area of Judah. It was a part of, don't worry, I'm going to show you a map of all this in a minute so you can get a, minute, a picture of it. A part of the tribe of Judah was allotted to Simeon. Since Judah's area was too large for it, it was partly given to Simeon. In the, it, it was located in the southern region known as the Negev. The next four tribes in the list occupied Galilee and the neighboring regions in the north of Canaan. Uh, Zebulun. Zebulun, 1910, was given his lot. Zebulun's territory was in the fertile hill country that rose from the coastal plain to the mountains of southern Galilee. Issachar, 1917, he's given his allotment. Issachar, Issachar bordered Zebulun, occupied the valley of Jezreel to the south of the Sea of Galilee. The area was strategically important and agriculturally rich. Asher, 1924, he's given his allotment. Asher was allotted the coastal plain from Mount Carmel north to, Phoenicia, to the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. But it never gained full control of the area and had to be content with the region around Mount Carmel and neighboring hill country. Naphtali, 1932 is where the allotment to we see to Naphtali. Naphtali was given the Galilean hills and the Jordan Valley, north of the Sea of Galilee. And then lastly, Dan. Dan is covered in 1940, and Dan's original position was on the Philistine coast between the tribes of Judah and Ephraim, squeezed between Israel's two most, most powerful tribes and pushed back from the coast by the Philistines and the Amorites. The tribe of Dan moved, though, later and settled in the far north 
northern part of Galilee. Now, I want to show you this map because you'll see all of that. All the tribes that are located at the top, that middle little white section at the top, right next to East Manasseh, that's the Sea of Galilee. And at the bottom, that white section next to Reuben is the Dead Sea. So you see northern Galilee is up top. Uh, you see all the tribes. Simeon, you see, is within Judah. You see Dan down below Ephraim, but later Dan moves up near Naphtali. Uh, and so you see a map of these allotments. After all of this, we get to 1949, 19, chapter 19, verse 49, and Joshua's allotment, which we read about earlier. Joshua, I said one of his qualities was nobility because he was last. Uh, he made sure he was la the last served. After all that I just read to you, all those allotments, Joshua doesn't come forth and say anything about getting anything for himself until all of that has been settled. Though he's the eldest and the greatest man of all of Israel, he had commanded the armies and the conquest of Canaan. Uh, he could have, if he'd wanted to, known he could have demanded that he be first. He could have demanded that he get the first settlement for him and his family. He does not, though, give any heed to his own interest till the commonwealth has been secured. Nobility at its finest. He was content to be unfixed till he saw them all settled. And herein is a great example to all in public places to prefer the common welfare before their particular satisfaction. We can learn something from that. We ought to, we ought to let others be first. This is a rare quality. Because just put yourself in, in Joshua's shoes. If you'd done all that Joshua had done, sacrificed all he had sacrificed, won all the battles he had won and done all of that, uh, if it had been you, uh, if it had been me, I probably would have said, look here, I'm going to be first in this thing. It's a rare quality to let others be first. But we see this quality in Joshua, nobility. It's on display in how he chooses. He chooses last. Next, though, we see Joshua's humility on display in what he chooses. We see his nobility on display in how he chooses. He chooses last. Next, we see his humility on display in what he chooses. It's in the text, text in chapter, uh, in verse 50, the last part, it says this, Timnasserah in the hill country of Ephraim. This is what he chooses. And in choosing Timnasserah, we see humility. Why? Unlike the other highly desirable territories, Timnasserah was seen as a place that had no great value. The city he asked to be given to himself and his family was located in the rugged, infertile, mountainous district of his own tribe, Ephraim. And it was a mere heap of stones, either because it had been demolished and converted into a heap of ruins or because no city had yet been built upon it. And this is what Joshua chooses for himself. 
in choosing this land, Joshua yet again proves, as we've seen time and time again, to be a type of Christ. We see it in him. Uh, here's what, here's what uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, so that, by, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Philippians 2, 6 says this. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing grasped. Uh, Joshua here shows us that he is yet again a type of Christ because he's willing to be humble and to take for himself that which was least desired. He lowered himself. He thought of others Better and more than, the, than he thought of himself. Uh, one of the prevailing principles in football. Anybody here know anything about football? I know it's a sore discussion for some of us. But I just thought we could relate. One of the prevailing principles for any coach to teach someone who's playing football is to always stay as low as you can. Stay as low as you can, no matter how big and strong you are, because the lower you are, the lower you are able to get, the more leverage you'll have. Doesn't matter your size, doesn't matter your strength. There's always somebody out there bigger and stronger than you. You got to learn to get low, because in getting low, you have leverage, no matter how big you are. The leverage is in the lowness. It's not just a principle in football. It's a principle also in life. No matter how big you get, no matter how, uh, 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 no matter what your title may be, no matter how large your bank account may be, no matter who you may know, no matter any of that, no matter how big you are, the lower you get, the more leverage you'll have. Because when you begin to get high, just like in football, you lose your leverage. It happens in life as well. Here's my, here's my point. Here is my, 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 my admonition to you as we look at these qualities in Joshua. Stay low. It's where your leverage is. So we see Joshua's nobility. We see his humility. Lastly, we see his industriousness. It's in the last part of verse 50. Here's what it says at, at the end of verse 50. It says this, and he rebuilt the city and settled in it. Let me share with you the definition of, definition of industriousness. Here it is. Diligence, especially in work that leads to natural and supernatural maturity. Share it with you again. Diligence, especially in work that leads to natural and supernatural maturity. Timnasira was a city that must be built before it was fit to be dwelt in. While others dwelt in houses which they had not built, Joshua must erect for himself such buildings that he might be a pattern of industry and contentment. Joshua has to be industrious. Joshua indeed builds the city 
He rebuilds it. He builds it. Not only that, he settles there, lives there until he's 110 years old. And in Joshua 24, 30, it records that he's even buried there. God created us to be industrious as a reflection of his image in us. God himself, if you've ever read, if you've ever read, read Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, you find out that God was the ultimate example of industriousness and diligence. He, 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 was, he was a hard worker, not was, still is. He's still not just sitting on the throne. He is still busy, involved in our lives even right now. He created us to reflect that part of him. One of the things that we are created to reflect. Colossians 3.23 says this, uh, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. As a, a, a Christian is an industrious person. Christians are not saved to sit. Proverbs 6 gives us an example of an ant. It says this in 6.6-8, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider his ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food and harvests. The ant is quite industrious. In Joshua's industriousness and diligence, we see once again, as we've seen all the way through, that he yet again demonstrates that he is a type of Christ. Christ, of course, was the ultimate example of diligence. Would you agree with that? At least one of y'all agree. Is anybody else in here that agree that Christ was the ultimate example of diligence? He showed diligence in his youth. When he said, I must be about my father's business, he showed diligence in his ministry. He was motivated with a defined purpose all throughout his ministry. He says in Mark 1:38, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. He is diligent in his youth, in his ministry. He accomplished the greatest work the world has ever seen in three years. He was able to do this because he showed devotion and diligence in his work ethic. He says this in John 9, 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. Not only was Jesus motivated by a devotion to his father's will, he was also motivated by his love for the souls of men. Christ was diligent in his work. To save our souls. You know that, right? You know that the work that he did to save us. We see diligence in it. He, it was hard work. It was agonizing work. The work that he put forth to save our souls, Paul records it in Philippians 2. Verses 5 through 8, here's what it says. Let this mind be in you, which also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and coming to the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself. He was diligent. He humbled himself. And became obedient, not just obedient, but here's true diligence, obedience to the point of death, 
But here is real, true, true diligence. Not just obedient, not just obedient to the point of death, but obedient to the point of death on the cross. My God, that's diligence. Have you ever read the story? Anybody else other than Cynthia ever read the story? How they, how they hung him on an old rugged cross. They hung him high. They stretched him wide. There was a crown of thorns on his head. Blood came streaming down. They pierced him in his side. They whipped him all the way up the hill. He had to carry, my goodness, his own cross. And they crucified him. And he died. He hung his head. In the locks of his shoulders. And he died. That is diligence. And he did it for you and for me. Lord, we thank you that you are that kind of God. You died for us to show us how industrious and diligent we ought to be. We ought to be people who have humility, who have nobility, who would allow others to go first and that we would be last and that we would do everything that we can to mature ourselves spiritually in you. Thank you, Lord. You blessed us with what we need to do that. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus name. Amen. To God be the glory. Uh, there may be someone here that doesn't know.